Welcome, everybody, to our third in the most recent series of the APCCC podcasts. Silky Gilson, Chris Sweeney are going to do the steering. Uh, we're really, uh, really pleased to be joined by Ros Eels. Ros, do you want to introduce yourselves? And then, Silky, do you want to ask the questions? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for asking me to be involved in one of these exciting projects podcast. So um, I'm a professor of oncogenetics at the Institute of Cancer Research and an honorary consultant at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. I'm a clinical oncologist by training with a special interest in cancer genetics in adults and I've got a prostate cancer treatment practice and then specialise in cancer genetic testing particularly in the germline um, in adults and uh, obviously for this podcast uh, with its relevance to prostate cancer patients and their families. Great. So, Ross, I think I, I just start off with the, the first question that I'm also getting asked a lot. So what do you think, and you said for prostate cancer, which patients need germline testing and counselling, of course? So unfortunately, I think it depends which country you work in. So the, if we take the ideal scenario... Um, yes. For example, if we take um, the recommendations um, in, in the United States, then we would want to test in men who have prostate cancer at young age of onset, by which we would mean really individuals at least under the age of 65. Um, in fact, in our research studies, we say under the age of 70, um, who, if they do not have any spread of their prostate cancer, might have between maybe a 4 and 7% chance of having a germline mutation in a DNA repair gene um, and in those with metastatic disease maybe at least one in six of those 13% might have a germline mutation in a DNA repair gene and unfortunately in the United Kingdom at the moment those individuals can only have testing if uh, they have a very strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer on the testing directory or if we found a mutation in their tumours and mm -hmm. this will actually change in the near future so that then we're all testing young onset cases or cases with metastatic disease yeah this is that's brilliant and maybe we can just expand that a little bit to ask the question is why would why should we test these patients what is the clinical implication of finding and what type of gene, examples of genes are you specifically referring to with ddr with dna damage repair Absolutely, Chris. So the sort of genes that, we're, that we would recommend testing would be germline mutations in the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes, ATM, and then mismatch repair. So the genes that predispose to Lynch syndrome. And the reason for testing these is that, first of all, for the individual themselves, it could have implications for their management. So if you've got a germline mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene or ATM, there's some early data, particularly from Johns Hopkins, that suggests that they may have a threefold higher risk of progression if you manage them with active surveillance. So it's not yet known whether you definitely, therefore, should manage such an individual with surgery if they have local disease rather than active surveillance. I don't think that's really proven definitely at the moment, but many units are now veering towards doing that. And uh, we have a very large research study going on to see if we can validate those data. But in, in many surgeons now, if you have a germline mutation in particularly BRCA1, BRCA2 or ATM, 
would prefer to offer surgery rather than active surveillance. And then for metastatic disease, um, that you can now offer targeted treatments using PARP inhibitors if somebody has relapsed, um, particularly if they've relapsed on first-line hormone therapy following the profound study results. So, can so, I ask you? Oh, oh, you go, you go, okay. Yeah. You go. Okay. Well, one thing, um, because that's really something that interests me, what you think about. Um, so there was in the NCN guidelines also um, at least a recommendation to also test patients who have intraductal, ductal or cribriform components in their primary tumor. So what do you think about that? Yes. And we, we, know, we now know that those, those features are associated with a worse prognosis. And I have to say my personal opinion is that this is very forward thinking and, and we would like to be able to do that. Unfortunately, in the UK, we can't on the current guidelines. Um, but, but I think it, following the NCCN guidelines in the US would definitely be the right way forward, in my opinion. Um, but we definitely need more data to, to can prove I, and that's can I the pick correct up thing. Can I pick up on two aspects of that is it's really high risk disease patients, uh, patients with high risk disease who actually are recommended. And I think it's very hard that you don't to get introductory without actually being high risk. Yeah. And that, that NCCN recommendation passing those out was the potential thought that patients with a bracket. Chris, I, I that... guess we, I guess we lost you. Yes. And I, uh, oh, I'm back. back. I just someone's just tried to call me, and so I had. To, uh, sorry about that. So, <laughs> Ros, I think part of that NCCN guideline was where there was some early notion that maybe patients with a BRCA2 mutation were more likely to have this introductal feature. Um, and I know Elena Castro's work has maybe discounted that a little bit. Now, Elena and you have worked closely together. What's your comment on that? I, yes, I think that's a very good point. It, is introductory disease was, was thought, wasn't it, to mm. be associated with a higher risk of being aggressive. And certainly BRCA2 was also thought to be associated with a higher risk of aggressive disease, but they weren't necessarily totally correlated. And certainly for BRCA1 mutation carriers, we, we've now got early data suggesting, and so has Elena Castro, that they maybe don't behave in such an aggressive way as germline mutations, those with germline mutations in BRCA2. And it's very interesting when you think about the other aspect of how you might manage individuals, for example, their relatives. Um, in the impact study, we did targeted screening of individuals with BRCA1 and BRCA2 germline mutations, and that was done with annual PSA starting at 40. And in the impact study results published in European Urology, we found that there was a significant benefit in doing screening in BRCA2 mutations, but not in those with BRCA1. We didn't, that didn't yet reach the significance, and that fit with this phenomenon. And now, so can, now the EAU guideline that we should do targeted screening in BRCA2 mutation carriers, but not yet BRCA1. Can I, can, I put a, can I put a patient scenario in front of you, Ross, sure. and see how Silker and you would react to this? So a 50-year-old man, uh, like, let's call him 52, my age, presents with a PSA <laughs> of 3.2 um, and had uh, no family history, actually, of prostate cancer. Um, and he's young and uh, he gets a, a biopsy. He's found to have uh, 3 plus 3 in 5% of one core 
and he got sent off for germline testing for whatever reason. And it did come back with a, a presence of a BRCA2 variant, um, pathogenic germline variant. Would you, how strong do you think that person would need a prostatectomy um, and is therefore, not, and would you say you definitely need a prostatectomy because you've got Gleason 6 and a carrier BRCA2 mutation? This is, this is such a classic dilemma that we see in the clinic. Um, so, you know, very small amount of Gleason 3 plus 3. You know, if you, if you didn't have a BRCA2 mutation, then there's no question most people would offer him active surveillance unless he was incredibly anxious about having surgery. And it's based on the progression data, it suggests the threefold higher risk of progression that some surgeons would offer surgery. And to be honest with you, nobody really knows the right answer. We need more follow-up data. Um, but but we, we tell people about the results and uh, watch them very closely if they decide to have active surveillance. So if you decide to have active surveillance, I have to say we wouldn't go beyond a year to repeat their MRI. So we would do, we would do MRI mm -hmm. a year. Um, and so, and, and to, any suggestion of progression, we'd rebiopsy. And so, to, to take that a step further, by progression, we mean a person going from a Gleason 6, small yeah. volume, low volume, to someone who may have a touch of Gleason 4. Not talking about progression to metastatic disease, it's just that they're less likely to stay on surveillance uh, longer. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Or maybe more cause becoming involved. Because we know, yeah. that, you know the molecular data that they do have a field effect you, with uh, quite a lot. Derangement has shown on a raised pH in the normal areas around where the tubes are. Ross, can I ask you something else? So, when we speak about family history, positive family history, I think this is probably one of the the easiest thing, at least, to do a family history. Um, kind of when you think about it. But what would you ask in that family history? Yes, and and everyone thinks that it takes forever. You know, it takes a long time to take a family history in the clinic. Right. To ask is, um, is there any cancer in your first degree relatives? You're talking about children, siblings, and your parents, and you want to know the type of cancer and the age of onset. And what we're really looking for is breast or ovarian cancer. That's your BRCA one or two indication that there may be a higher chance or colon cancer uterine cancer and maybe tbc even other types of kidney and, and uh, urothelial tract cancer which might indicate a lymph system or mismatch repair mutation being in the family and then all you need to then ask is are there any other cancers in any other relatives and so, so that's going to capture over 90 percent of the significant family histories that we see so pancreatic cancer is not on your list um, it, it, it is a younger onset for BRCA2, but it's quite interesting with BRCA2 families. Not, not all BRCA2 families have a pancreatic cancer within them. When we have a, a BRCA2 carrier, we don't do pancreatic screening, for example, unless we see another case in the family. It, it is an indicator, and um, so is melanoma of the skin. And in some BRCA2 families, we also see thyroid cancer, lymphoma, head and neck cancer in those that smoke. It's much less mm -hmm. common. Okay, interesting. And do you ask for Ashkenazi ancestry or other ancestries specifically? Uh, yes, we do, actually. And, uh, it, 
it's also worth making the question that you say where are people from because because of the history of migration and tragedy during that causes migration due to um, disruption in countries sometimes people change their names so it's often worth saying what are your actual origins as well so so it isn't it isn't just Ashkenazi origins that might be important so for mm -hmm. example um, we do see um, certain mutations in, for example the Icelandic population with the RCA2 mutation carriers being more common in that population. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And can we maybe just also ask about um, Lynch syndrome and prostate cancer? I think that doesn't get enough attention um, sometimes. What, do, what are your thoughts about patients with a family history of colon cancer? Um, so that's a really good question. So after the impact data that we've just talked about a minute ago for BRCA1 and BRCA2, uh, after we finished recruiting those mutation carriers, we then uh, have been recruiting people with germline mutations that predispose to Lynch syndrome, so MLH1, MSH2 and MSH6. We haven't been recruiting PMS2 carriers because they're much rarer. And uh, we're just analysing the data at the moment and preparing an analysis for submission for publication. So uh, from the published data so far, the indication is they may have approximately a threefold increased risk of prostate cancer. We don't know if it applies to all of those genes that I mentioned. It may be some rather than others. But this one paper from Manchester, from Barrow, that suggests that the tumours may actually also be more aggressive in some of those gene mutation carriers. They are, uh, of course, um, uh, as you know, from the, co from the colon cancer literature, um, uh, often res very responsive to immunotherapy. Mm. So, of course, that raises the possibility about uh, if you had prostate cancer and you had a mutation in the mismatch repair gene, would you be more likely to respond to immunotherapy, particularly if metastatic disease? And we've certainly seen reports of, of dramatic responses. Ross, can I ask you a, a very practical question? Um, so... If someone had, for some reason, a somatic testing in his tumor first, and there wasn't any BRCA1 and 2 mutation, let's say, do you still do a germline testing? Because there's, there's always written that you could still find one in the germline testing. So what is your recommendation for that? Yes, that's a really good question. We've certainly seen instances where um, we have not found a mutation in the tumor, and it has been in the germline. And what's happened in the tumour is it's lost both copies because it's so deranged. So that wouldn't stop me testing somebody. Okay. That's, that's fascinating, Ross. I never mm -hmm. thought of it that way. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So the, so the report would show bracket to loss on the Foundation 1 without it. And you can therefore can't take, detect the mutation. That's actually gold information. No, no, it's that. it's the other way around in in reality because it it would say negative on or if I didn't misunderstand, it would be saying negative in the foundation one, and you yep. should still do a germline. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, it's because okay. the uh, copy number loss of the yes. bracket gene, so they don't see the mutation. That it's exactly, that. yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. So this is all gold information, Ross. It's spectacular. Um, so we've got implications for patients and their family members, and patients with regards to, to close watching them if they're on active surveillance and potential therapeutic options if they develop metastatic disease and also cascade testing. Can we just quickly turn to the world of, and the, 
work that you've been leading is fantastic and how close it is mm. to the reality of risk testing, um, looking at SNPs and how SNPs different to exomes and recognising, you talk about that maybe 10% of patients with prostate cancer we can account for by exome mutations. But there's so much more in the SNP literature, but we haven't implemented that in screening tests yet and how close we are there. That's a very big question, but what can you say in the next couple of minutes to enlighten us about that? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a potentially very exciting area. So <clears throat> um, there are what we call common variants. So they're in general present in greater than 5% of the population, and they are widespread across the genome. They're so-called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, and uh, they are numerous. So, so, so far we have what we call a SNP profile or a series of genetic variants that you can type in an individual. That at the moment in Europeans, it would be about 170 of these. And in people of African ancestry, about 86 unique ones. And uh, they're common. They're, they're, they are distributed across the genome. And each of them has a small increased risk. But together, it's like having a hand of cards in a bridge game and, and taking the total points. Um, of those, each person has an individual risk profile. So they're not like the BRCA1 or 2, where there's a one in two chance that your child will have this high risk, one single alteration. Here, it's like you shuffle your pack of cards and you give your child another set of points. And it could be totally different from yours. So each one is very individual to that person. And that raises the possibility that you can do testing of large numbers of individuals in the population and then stratify them. And that therefore raises the possibility, could we use that for population stratification to target our screening? So particularly, uh, and that applies in most countries at the moment, as you know, where there's no set screening of the population because of um, the finding that you might find just disease that's never going to bother anyone. And the question is, could you use these to actually identify who you should offer screening to? not screen other individuals and then would you enrich the population for the number of cases at the moment the jury is out as to whether this will work but we're doing uh, studies to see whether this is a possibility and each snip is only about 7p to test so so the total cost can be quite small that's that's fascinating and so yeah and your this has the potential i think from reading your work at ross is that you'll be able to find a the terminology I'm hearing you use is polygenic risk score using the SNPs to identify patients with um, at risk of having high risk disease, uh, clinically significant prostate cancer rather than the Gleason 6 and 5% core, which is a lot of men may have. This is, need yeah, to know that's, about. that's right. That's what we don't know at the moment is, is will, it, will it, because you see more cases in people with the higher polygenic risk score, in other words, the higher number of sort of car, cancer, points in your hand as it were in the bridge game so so <laughs> the people with the higher polygenic risk score because they are more likely to have disease they might they, they, that group might be more enriched for those with aggressive disease also what we don't know is how many men you would have to screen in that group to find those um, that have the aggressive disease but the, but the modeling suggests that that should enrich for people who have disease that should mm -hmm. be treated fantastic fantastic work ross Ross, yeah. we're coming to the end. One of the questions I've got is what are the, what are the next big steps in this area uh, and what is the next big breakthrough for patients in, in this field? I think, I think one of the next big steps is getting a, a multi-ethnic profile for common variants. 
because we want one profile now. If we are going to do mass population testing and it is going to work, because um, populations, for example, in the United Kingdom, in the US and across Europe, many populations are now very diverse and we're seeing a lot of admixture. So we want one profile. We don't want to be doing one profile for one population and one for another because actually it doesn't work if you've got a very uh, mixed population. And then the next um, challenge is, is the DNA repair gene profile big enough? And so we're trying to find other genetic mutations in other DNA repair genes that might also enable you to do further targeted treatment. And, and the, the early research data suggests that the, the current gene testing profile, even with the NCCN guidelines, is probably not wide enough. Um, Silky, Chris, any last questions or shall we call it? I think we should call it and we should give Ross yeah, a it's... big hand of applause for such an elegant, <laughs> yeah. eloquent and elegant discussion. Thank it you. was a tour Thanks de force, Ros. Thank you very much, yeah. Ros. It was fantastic. And nice Silky, to talk Chris. To you all. It's a pleasure. Cheers, Ross. <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Ciao.